So Luke chapter 13 is where we are uh, uh, this morning. I want to start off just a, a little bit different. Um, last Sunday was uh, what is traditionally known as the, it's an unfortunate tradition, as the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Um, this past week was the March for Life in D.C. It always takes place um, uh, on, the, I believe, the same day that the Roe versus Wade um, decision was infamously, infamously was handed down by the Supreme Court back in 1973, making it 46 years uh, this past week. Um, you are all familiar with this by now, so I don't have to go over too much, but I want to take a few minutes at the beginning of this uh, sermon just to, to talk a little bit about this issue, because oftentimes we, we look at this, the issue of abortion as being something that's just kind of outside of us and out away from us, and it's not as local as as, as maybe as um, we think it's more national and not local. Um, and this very much is a very local issue, uh, even here in Statesboro and Georgia and, and of course, the, the rest of the country. Uh, back in the early 70s, when, when this decision was handed down, I, I was not alive then, so I'm not speaking for myself, I'm speaking for other people. Um, I, think, um, I don't think that the church um, could conceive or... or uh, can, can conceive or could see something like this actually happening in, in our country. Uh, I think they were mostly blindsided by, by this and, and, and even maybe even divided uh, in it, unfortunately, uh, in, in churches. And so mostly I think the church was silent. And I could be wrong, and that's fine. Uh, and you all can correct me on that later. Um, they were blindsided by the, the ruling and, and maybe even didn't understand all of its implications because those are things we just don't talk about. Um, since 1973, you've, you all have heard some of these statistics. Since 1973, there is an estimate, and adding together, and these are pretty accurate numbers, that over 60 million babies have been killed. Over a 46-year span. In fact, it's so widespread, that's 60 million. There is a good chance that everybody in this room knows someone who has had an abortion. You may not even know about it, but I guarantee you know somebody who's had an abortion. It's that widespread. In 1973, the very first year, over 700,000 abortions. The next year, there was up to 900,000 the very next year, 1974. And we're not going to talk about all 46 years, but the highest of all of it was in 1992 of over 1.1 million. I was 12. Over double since 1973. But since 1992, those numbers have actually been steadily decreasing to... To, to now somewhere around 600,000 a year. That's lower than 1973. In 1982, there was a high watermark of abortion providing clinics, such an oxymoron of terms, of 2,918. In 2014, there were only about 1,600 clinics left. 
Abortion, and I, and I don't mean to sound crass, is very much an industry. It's an industry of, of, of evil, and evil has wrapped itself in this industry of death with a motivation of money. Money is a motivator for this. And, and, and don't you think that organizations, here comes another oxymoron, Planned Parenthood, and I speak with disdain that they don't feel that money and want that money. It's still more than a $500 million a year industry, and that organization makes up about a third of that industry. Do not believe the lie that they are about women's health. So what's the difference? Why the decrease since 1992? Well, there's many different reasons and some variables that are good. And, but, but mostly what I think has happened is the church. That, that light's wigging us out. Uh, it's going to kill my kids back there. Um, what has changed is that the church has been awakened. Christians began to start national organizations and marches and awareness campaigns. But, but greater than, than those big things that we hear about in, in electing officials and all that, the biggest thing is that Christians began to work locally. Christians began to get their hands and their, their feet dirty, meeting people where they are to engage them. What the church is actually called to do. To get messy. From pregnancy care centers opening up all over the country. In fact, if, I can't remember the statistic, but I pretty much, I think the statistic is, is that there are by far way more pregnancy care centers now in the United States than there are abortion providing clinics. That tells you something. We have an abortion, or not abortion, we have a pregnancy care center here in Statesboro, and there is no abortion providers in Statesboro. Praise God. Praise God for the church. And, and see, the, the, the rub that I get is that if you, if you listen to the media, then, then all that you're going to get out of that is this perspective that we're losing. Now, we're, we got this perspective that we're losing the battle. You are out of touch. You hate women. You are on the wrong side of history. The debate is over. It's the way of life. It's what we do. And even now, they're pushing even more, right? We saw this, this past week as the state of New York is allowing abortion basically right up to the point a baby is born. But brothers and sisters, the numbers do not lie. Abortion may never go away until the Lord comes back. And this too shall be made right. But brothers and sisters, we must not stop praying, giving, giving, helping, volunteering, discipling, and working until this, like the sin of slavery was abolished and this too shall be abolished. This is a sin. It's a sin against the image of God. It's a sin against the person of God. It is a travesty. It's a travesty for our country. It's a travesty for our city, for our state. It's a tragedy for the individuals involved. And when we see this kind of sin in the world, I'm going to transition now more into the sermon time now. 
make the connection. When we see this kind of sin in the world and, and these kind of huge numbers, sometimes that can just kind of fly over our head. We have such a hard time comprehending numbers like a million. It's hard to explain. It's hard to fathom. It's hard to understand. How do we wrap our minds and grasp those kinds of things? How do we get our minds around other tragedies and suffering in, in the world from natural disasters and wildfires and earthquakes and tornadoes and hurricanes and famine and war and crime and mass shootings? How do we get our mind around human suffering in the world? Where? Well, this is where Brothers and sisters, good theology comes in. This is where good theology comes in and helps us. Not just to give us a good explanation to the question of life, but a truth that shapes our lives around a biblical worldview so that when we see these things externally, or maybe they're happening to us directly, we know how to handle and deal with such sins such as abortion or tragedies. This is where Luke chapter 13 helps us. So let's read it together. Luke chapter 13, verse 1. There were some present at the very time who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on, on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the other who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I can find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit in move in our hearts to hear and see this holy inspired word for his glory and our joy. Amen. All right, over and over again, we're seeing this trend. We see the trend in the Gospels and, and in Luke that, that Jesus doesn't live in the small, trivial, shallow, meaningless places of life. Jesus' life isn't speaking about the latest cultural trends and, and media and entertainment. Jesus is deep. Jesus is, 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 knows that this life is messy. He knows that it is broken. He knows that it is wicked and that it is unjust. Chapter 13 
definitely starts out for us that this is not the kind of kiddie pool, feel good, candy and ice cream teaching that most people want from Jesus. It's not the kind of sermon that most people want even today. People want entertainment. They want fun. They want comfort, comfort, and more comfort. They want in their churches comfort and ease in every area of life and a Jesus that approves that stuff. That's what they want. And the outcome has been generations of weak-willed, shallow people and churches. But chapter 13, as we have now come up to it over these many months... Jesus does not let us go off the cliff with the masses. This passage is bloody. This passage is difficult. It is painful. It is deep. And as we talked about weeks earlier, it is what offends people. But what we we will see from the passage this morning is that when we press in, when we lean in and we embrace the truth, the things that Jesus is is telling us to engage with, it's in those moments of life when the gospel presses us the hardest. And isn't it in that moment when we are being pressed, when we are being pressed by the gospel, pressed by the Lord, that he uses uses that to turn us into something more beautiful? Not just candy and ice cream, but presses a piece of coal into a diamond. This passage is about repentance. Hope you see that there. Jesus is pretty emphatic. Not hard to interpret what this passage means. Back in chapter 12, y'all might remember when, when, when Peter asked Jesus, is this for us? Do we need to take notes? Is this going to be on the test? Y'all remember when he said that? And, and, and Jesus is like, yeah, yeah, of course it is. And he, and he answers in a different way, actually, with a parable. Um, but Peter's apathy and reluctance to want to listen to Jesus' teaching and then to think that it's only for other people is kind of the way that we want to treat repentance. We want to treat repentance as if uh, it's, it's not for us, but it's for them. It's for someone else, and the person next to me, maybe. Not for me. And we're so familiar with this, with this word that we can be like Peter again, that it's not for me. I've already done that. It's easy to hear messages on repentance and, again, reflect how much someone else needs it. But that's not at all what Jesus is saying here. In fact, if, if, if you're the one saying that it's not for me, then that's indicative that it is for you. The theme of chapter 13 doesn't change much from chapter 12. As you, you all know, we have said several times, Luke and the writers of the Bible didn't put in the chapter numbers in in, in the verses, and I'm not saying that because I'm against them, because I'm not. They're very, they're, they're very helpful, but where they're not helpful at is they're not helpful in interpretation, okay? The, the numbers and, and chapters and stuff like that, they are, they are not helpful in interpretation. And in fact, look at verse 1, and I can show you why. Here's verse 1, beginning, it says, there were 
some present at the time who told him. Okay, so there, there, are, there were some people that were in that crowd. You ever remember Jesus turned to the crowd again who, who told Jesus something. And we know what that something is. It's about the, the event with the, with the Galileans. Now, last time we talked about how that, uh, that Jesus told them that, hey, you can read the weather, but you can't interpret the, the signs of the times. You can't interpret this present time. And so I think what happened is, is after that, someone raised their voice up and said, uh, yeah, we can. We know what happened here. What happened to the Galileans, them wicked jokers, they deserved it. We can read the signs of the times. There's a rub that's happening here. We know what's going on. Someone told him, the rest of verse 1, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now this is an interesting interesting event, to say the least. Now, this event is not recorded in any of the, any of the other Gospels, and it's kind of hard to really see too much in history. Uh, and maybe there were some events that uh, the, the famous histor- Jewish historian from the first century, Josephus, talked about that might uh, make the connection. But what we do know about this particular event is, is Pilate, Pontius Pilate, as we all know, right, infamously from what we know from the end of the gospel, is that he was a pretty brutal dude. He was pretty brutal. And as we also know from the story with Jesus is that he didn't like crowds forming in Jerusalem. He didn't like that. He didn't want that happening. And so at some point, these, these Galileans were offering sacrifices on Passover. It has to be Passover because anybody that's a non-priest, you can only offer sacrifices yourself on Passover. And so this group, celebrating Passover, sacrificing, when some Roman soldiers came in and gutted them, bled them out, and then took their blood and poured it all over the altar. Perspective. Someone came in and slaughtered us just because we were meeting together as a group. And so the perspective of these Jews, the crowd, who thought they knew what was going on. These Galileans were were sinners. First of all, they're Galileans. And they're like the worst of all Galileans to have something like that happen to them. The common belief of the day, that, that was it. It's still true today, right? People still believe in this karma mentality. What goes around comes around. You get what you deserve. Now, in some sense, there's some truth there. In some sense, we, we kind of enjoy when that happens, when we see something happen maybe to like a dumb criminal. You see that on YouTube, right? Dumb criminal videos, and you know they rob someone's house, and then they trip and fall and like break their face open. We all laugh. The reality is, is that's just maybe a general principle. The reap what you sow is a general, proverbial principle. But that's not the providential reality. I mean, to believe in karma is a person who doesn't go outside. 
is a, is a person that doesn't watch the news and see all the time that good things are happening to bad people all the time. And bad things never happen to bad people. Certain ones especially, right? And they get away with it and live lives of luxury. So Jesus is attacking that dumb idea. He is, a, he is a attacking it. In, in a fallen world where everything is reversed, wickedness is rewarded, really terrible things happen to good people all the time. Let me read this to you. August, August 2014, on a Sunday morning around 11.30, an entire family entered heaven together. Jameson and Catherine Powell's and their small children were driving from Minneapolis to Colorado for final preparations as missionaries to Japan. They planned to leave in October, but an interstate construction zone in western Nebraska, a semi-truck driver rear-ended the family's vehicle. Tragically, the entire family died at the scene, including Jameson and Catherine, both 29, and their three young children, three-year-old three Ezra, 23-month-old Violet, and two-month-old Calvin. The 53-year-old truck driver was arrested and charged with five counts of felony motor vehicle homicide. They must be worse sinners. So God punished them. That's their viewpoint. Or verse 4, Jesus kind of raised the ante a little bit and gives them another example. Let me give you another example. Talks about the tower in Siloam that, that fell and killed 18 people. And he asks the same question again. Were they worse off? Were they worse than, than everybody else in Jerusalem? And that's why the tower fell and picked them off? The weed them out? Pilate did a lot of building in Jerusalem. And he liked things with water. And maybe he was involved with building this particular tower. But somewhere at some point... The tower had fallen and it killed 18 people, workers, men, women, and maybe even children. Didn't matter, dead. All because the tower fell. And according to the view, again, these 18 must have been judged as worse sinners. So, so now we've got, we got the first event, which we certainly can attribute to the wickedness of man. An abusive authority and evil, right? The, the slaughter of those, uh, of those Galileans. But what about in the second event? I mean, in a sense, there's no uh, in, intentional no wickedness, but it was an accident, of a, a fault in the foundation. The thing fell down. I mean, that still happens today. Crazy things still happen like that today. And Jesus asked the question again, are they worse sinners than you? Well, the answer again is no. No. They're not. So here's, here, here's the point. They, they are not any more wicked than you or me. They were not more moral than you or me or better or worse. They were everyday people. No different from, from people who, who woke up one Tuesday morning, they ate breakfast, they drove to work, they hopped on a train like every other day, and then jets slammed into their building. 
Or, or, or maybe the person who was on vacation in one of the most beautiful tropical beaches the world has to offer. Unbeknown to them, an earthquake takes place in the middle of the Indian Ocean, and then a 50-foot wave crushes that whole area, killing over a quarter million people all in a moment. Or just a few years ago, another Sunday morning, People who woke up, went to church, went to fellowship, heard a guest, guest preacher at their little church in South Texas. And unknown to them, a psycho with guns shows up and kills as many as he could. Or, or, or just the everyday car accidents. It doesn't have to be you know, something big. It could be the everyday car accidents, the heart attacks, the aneurysms, or, or just the heading out and getting some milk. It happens every day, all around the world, unknown, unexpected. And Jesus' point is this. It's not that they are more wicked than the rest of us that this happened to them. And the lesson in tragedy is not for us to determine someone else's sinfulness. It's not for us to determine their sinfulness and then look at ourselves and say, well, I'm not as bad as him, that's why it didn't happen to me. But as Jesus tells us, it is to lead us to repentance. Tragedies, we do not know why they happen. These are, these are the bitter providences of God. Tragedies happen, suffering happens, death happens happens. But Jesus says they are all led, all to lead us to repentance. It is a, it's, it's, a, it's a clothing that's over each one of these events that's to lead us to repentance. Lead unbelievers to repentance, to lead believers to, to repentance. And the reason is, is because we all deserve judgment. We, we all deserve judgment. And with each tragedy, our prayer should be, Lord, you know, if I really got what I deserved, that's what would happen to me. That's, there it is. Jesus two times tells them in verse 3 and verse 5, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Again, we've seen this throughout chapter 12. These are not politically correct words, are they? The very fact, the thought that someone has to repent <laughs> is very intolerant. But repentance, repentance is the response when faith is given to the gospel. Here, here's what Jesus is not saying, though. He, he, he's not saying that if you don't repent, then a building is going to fall on your head. He's not saying that. And, and that's where we get the, we get the word likewise. That's where it's, that, that word's key for us, because here's what he's saying when he says likewise. He says, see these people and how they died? That's, a, that's an example we, we all know we're going to die. They all knew that at some point they were going to die, but they died unexpected. 
unknown to them, they, they died. And the, the horror of, their, of that end took them by surprise. Same, death will be a surprise, and it will sneak up upon you, unready for what is to come. It doesn't matter if you die at 90, at 100, at 70, at, at 80, or 25. Life passes by and death sneaks upon us. Sneaks upon us. Let just give you an example. It'd be a funny one, I hope. It seems like yesterday I was in college, right? I mean, it was like 10 minutes ago I was, you know, I was uh, still in Louisville. And had a few less kids. There's one right there. You think about that. Think about for, for you all, right? And children grown up, getting, getting married in college, working. Seems like yesterday. Doesn't it sneak up on us? And the same thing. And if we don't die in some tragic way, and death will sneak up on us. But built right up in, in that, though, built, built right in that, there's a way to be prepared when we die. There's a way to be prepared when we die. I would, I would suggest to you that that family that we talked about, they were prepared before they died. And Jesus tells us, repent. Repent. So again, I, I go back to how I, how I started. Do we draw from this, this message of, of repentance for ourselves? Do we, do we draw the line from, from our sin and in, in our depravity, in our nature? Does it, does it draw us into repentance? Is repentance one of the first things that comes to our hearts and minds when we hear God's word preached? When, when sin uh, is, in a sense, revealed to us. Is repentance what comes to, to mind? One of the greatest elements missed to the response to the preaching of the gospel in our generation is repentance. Again, we think about what other people need to do. It's hard to think about our own need of repentance when we're thinking of others when they need to repent. But repentance begins with knowing our own sin. Let's talk a little bit about repentance. It first starts off with knowing our own sin. We can all pick out everyone, else, everyone else's, right? Lord knows I am good at that. But the point is, Jesus is saying, is you're no worse than everyone else. And you're no better. We have to see it and believe it for ourselves so that we can deal with it. And I'm speaking with, from my own bitter experience of having to look at my own sin in the eye and say, man, that's mine. That's mine. That's not anyone else's. That's, that's mine. You know, I wish we had more younger people to tell this to because I wish I was taught and exampled when, when I was, was young about repentance and what it means to repent and how to repent and what it means to walk in repentance. When you are young, your, your repentance now and at that age is really gauges the reality of your faith 
and not only your faith then, but also how it greatly affects where you are in, in the future. And, and if you're not dealing with these things about your, yourself and all you can see is everyone else, then you will continually to learn to shut your eyes to your own heart and to those things. And then the reality of your faith is that it's weak. And in the end, it may even prove to be non-existent. Repentance is ongoing. That's why the Bible talks so much about it. It's, it's not just the, the entrance of the kingdom. It's the continuation into the kingdom. That's why the Bible talks so much about it, because repentance is ongoing. It is who we are. It's what we do. It's how we exemplify humility. Create a, a strong habit of Repentance, young, old, middle. If we're not repenting, then something's wrong. Right? If, we have, if we have nothing to see and repent of, then, then maybe we're not as aware of our own hearts as maybe we should be. When we know our sin, then we will grieve over our sin. Not to cover it up, not to hide from it, not, not, we don't grieve over it because we've been caught. We've all seen the people do that. They're only upset because they were caught or embarrassed or upset about the consequences, but actual grief over sin, over our sin, over my sin. Grieved over our sin, and then that stirs us up. Again, not at, the, not at what it costs us, or at the embarrassment, but what we have done. And it's there. Now we're getting somewhere. In repentance, when you grieve over your sin, now we are getting somewhere. And that brings us to the second one, because repentance then leads about confession, the confession of sin. And I mean the confession of sin to God. And when we confess our sins with, to God, that means that's in a sense we are saying that we agree with God that this sin is egregious, that it was against His holy will for our lives, this is disobedient to to the word of God, and it's disobedient to the good that God has over my life and for my life. Confessing means agreeing with God, and what we have done was sin against Him. Third, repentance means turning from that sin. That's where we traditionally, we really know what repentance is. But we turn from that sin because we, have, we, we know the, the, the grievousness of the sin because we've grieved it and we've confessed it. And then we turn from that sin because it has grieved us and we confess it to God and we turn away from that sin. But when we turn away from that sin, we are turning toward God. We're turning toward the Lord. We're turning toward Christ. And I love this idea because the, the Bible oftentimes speaks about uh, a repentance in this idea of conversion. And conversion has this, has this beautiful idea of this change of heart. The reason why we turn from our sin into God is because our hearts, in a sense, have been converted. They've been changed. We've been moved from sin, and we no longer desire that thing that we wanted to desire, and now we desire something greater and better because we have been changed. Brothers and sisters, repentance changes our hearts. 
It changes our lives. From sin to a greater joy. It brings about renewal and restoration with God the Father. The overwhelming point of this passage and this sermon is repent. Repent or perish. Repent or perish, for it sneaks up on you. And to make sure everybody understood it, and what Jesus was telling them in repenting or perish, he, he, he illustrates it with another parable to them. And in this parable is remarkable. Because in this parable is wrapped up all the wrath of God towards sin and sinners. And yet also the patience and steadfast love of God, the mercy of God toward people who are not repenting. Look at it again. Look at verse 6. A man had a fig tree, planted his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look. For three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, uh, let it alone this year also until I dig around and put on, put on manure. I love the Bible talks about manure. You guys know what manure is, right? Of course you all do. Then if it should bear fruit the next year, well and good. Y'all thought I was thinking something else. It's fertilizer. Um, well and good next year, but if not, you can cut it down. So here's Jesus, again, talking to this people, this group of this crowd, who, who, who all thought that the good things that have happened to them and the bad things that haven't happened to them is all because uh, of, of some reason in the way that they have lived. And something in the way that they have lived their lives is some kind of moral favor uh, that, that they have been able to achieve with, with God. Some kind of favor that, that, in a sense, God owes them, and so they're not going to die, uh, you know, horrifically. But Jesus looks at all of them and says, again, you're wicked. Repent or perish. You're just like them. You're, 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 you're just as bad. You're not earning any favor or, or anything else before God. God owes you nothing. So this thing's illustrating here. So this, this wrath in the passage of the, the, the owner of the vineyard is, by the way, is God. That's, that's who that is in that picture. That's God. And God is saying, I owe this tree nothing. I cut down a, a, a lime tree in my yard because it was stupid. Number one is my fault. Because you really shouldn't grow limes in Statesboro. But number two, the thing died. And then it grew all these crazy little thorny bushes. And I cut that sucker out because it was no good. I didn't owe that lime tree anything. God is, doesn't owe anything to us. We cannot put God into our debt. Israel is often known as the fig tree. So there's the example there. Fig tree is, is Israel, the people there. And Jesus is saying that the vineyard owner is wanting that thing cut down because I want to plant a tree that's going to bear fruit. And so what happens to those fruitless, unrepenting people who confess even Jesus as their Savior? When faith becomes more like a list of moral observations, 
What happens to those when, when the one or two hours a week is all there is? What happens when you don't grow in joy and, and, and worship of, of Christ and, and when you don't grow into love for, for God's authority, holiness, power, and, and glory, but instead it's about being better or doing better or doing right and not repenting? Those are the ones who are using up that ground. That's the parish part that Jesus was talking about earlier. The death, the judgment. This is the wrath of God. Because in this little story, God is the vineyard owner. But here's what's also neat about this story. Is God is also the vine dresser. God is also the, the, the vine dresser. So again, what should be done is what the vineyard owner wants, right? What should be done is to cut that sucker down, burn it, and let me plant another one. It should be what the, what the vineyard owner wants. But it's what the vine dresser does is what God does. We see God's wrath and anger in that passage. For those who belittle his name, who produce no fruit, Attempting to earn the favor of God by their own works, but then, but then there's this patience, this unbelievable patience and, and mercy to, to just give it some more time. Brothers and sisters, this is a reminder to all of us that God is far more patient and merciful to us than we have a right to expect. We deserve judgment, and we deserve to be dug up right now and cast in the fire. But the, but the fact that life continues day after day means that God is extraordinarily merciful and patient with everyone, to us and to a world that mocks him. This is why Jesus doesn't call the angels down when he's hanging on the cross to destroy the world. Thank God. Thank God, brothers and sisters, that this morning we're not facing tragedies. But, but do you know what this sermon is about? Yeah, it's about repentance. But this sermon for you this morning, and this passage has been for me all week long, is again the mercy of God engaging you. Engaging you, engaging me, and reminding me, and warning me to bear fruit of, especially the fruit of repentance. It's, a, it's another year of, of the steadfast love and mercy of, of God as he, as he digs around us using suffering, using whatever it takes to, to prune our hearts and to sever the roots of this world that we have dug ourselves into to sever those roots, and to put manure on us. This sermon is manure. Because it's used, be used, it is being used by the mercy of God to fertilize our hearts, to challenge and to press all of us to bear fruit, especially the fruit of repentance. Can, can you see it that way? 
Can, can we see it that way? That, it, that now the Spirit of God, the Word of God is speaking to us and, and, and showing us on one side the wrath of God towards, towards sinners and what we deserve, but then on the other side we see this great love and mercy and patience that has been poured out on us. Give them another day. Give them another day. Give them another day. And yet all we deserve is that for that tower to fall on our heads. Oh, the mercy of God. Let's wrap it up. We're guilty. There's not one person in this room that, in this morning that does not deserve the full wrath of God. There's not one of us that does not deserve the same fate as the Galileans or those who were crushed by the Tower of Siloam. We will perish eternally in judgment facing the wrath of God toward our sin if we have not received the grace of God. The grace of God. The grace of God to repent. That's second. We must cultivate lives of repentance. We cannot exist with a, a sense of repentance in this, this one-time event or prayer. But repentance, again, is a lifetime of discipline. It's a lifetime of discipline as being, being a Christian. We are always repenting. It's ongoing. Third, don't, don't ignore repentance. Don't ignore the work of the Holy Spirit and the, the preaching of the, the Word of God to show you where you need to repent, even maybe this, this, this morning. Because even, even though the Lord is, is drawing and moving in your life today, because He is slow to anger today, abounding in love today, that doesn't mean it's going to be like that next Sunday. Because that year may be up. I hope we can see and hear the depth that Jesus is teaching us. And I get it. Repentance isn't fun. It's not a, something grand. It's not something we want to put on the screen. Our, our sin, when we are confronted with it, is, is not pretty. I, I get it. We want to avoid it. But when we realize it, we realize that we are the last one that deserves mercy and grace. But then on the other hand, we see here the mercy of God given to us. In repentance, there is the mercy of God. I told you earlier that it changes our lives. It changes our, our hearts from towards sin to a gracious God who's ready to forgive to forgive you even at your absolute worst or your absolute best. Repentance is hard. It's tough to see ourselves. It's, it's hard to see that God is merciful. But, but through it, He is pruning you. Again, He is severing the roots of our hearts toward, toward a soil of the world and casting manure on you to fertilize you for future growth. Brothers and sisters, let us be about repentance. First and foremost, repentance right here. 
And I mean you. You look at me. You all look at me. We repent. 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 Let's pray. Thank you for the word, Father. Thank you for continually correcting us and leading us. Thank you for such mercy. Oh, Father, forgive me for presuming mercy so much. Please forgive me for expecting mercy so many times. Yet, Lord, help us by your mercy and grace to repent of our sin, to be drawn toward you, that our hearts again will be changed and conformed more into the image you desire us to be. Lead us now in your spirit and in your name we pray. Amen.